We're so glad you're tuning into this week's Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jason Hitchings, the Men's and Sports Director. This week, we're moving on to Chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark, pressing further into our Master Class series. Today's message focuses on considering what it means to invest in God's kingdom. How does Jesus see our contributions of time and money into his kingdom? And what can he do with what we give over to him? Over the next half an hour, we'll explore Jesus' teachings on these things and more, and consider how to put them into practice. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, Rolling Hills. My name is Mike Minter. I'm one of the associate teaching pastors here, also known as the old guy. But uh, today we've got a lot to cover. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 12. Now, Mark is the fastest moving of the Gospels. It's very, very fast. It's action-packed, and it covers everything regarding the subject matter of the Gospel from beginning to end. Great, great book. I'm glad we're going through it, 16 chapters, and we're getting close to finishing this up. Today, if you have ever had a broken relationship, could be child to parent, children to children, could be boss, employee, neighbors, whatever, this is for you, and it's for me, because I think all of us have experienced this. And you might wonder where I'm going to get this out of this chapter, but first of all, let me give you a little brief summary of this particular chapter, and then we'll dive into this because we're going to call this the superlative nature of love. Superlative meaning the highest, the best, the greatest, all right? I'm going to just tell you, this, this has a, a lot in this particular chapter. There's a section here about uh, a man that owns a vineyard and he uh, rents it out to a bunch of, of, of sharecroppers, and he sends his servants in to collect a little bit from time to time, but they get beaten up and killed, and eventually he sends in his son, and his son gets killed. And of course, this represents the fact that Jesus is the ultimate cornerstone. It's taken out of, the, out of the, uh, Psalm 118, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He talks about, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they're always trying to trap Jesus. And he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. They often say, don't mess with Texas. I say, don't mess with Jesus. You're always going to get in trouble. All the religious leaders are always trying to entrap him some way, some shape, somehow. Then there's the widow's offering where Jesus says, this woman only threw in a couple of coins, but it says she threw in more than all of them, all the people that were very rich but the IRS would say, no, she didn't. She only threw in two coins, and they threw in hundreds. But he wasn't talking about amount. He was talking about sacrifice. That's a whole message in itself. So here's what I want to look at. I'd like you to start in chapter 12. I'd like you to look at verse 18, and we're going to read this section here, and then we're going to dive into another portion that we're going to spend most of our time on. Verse 18, 
Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we'd behold wondrous things out of your law. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. They're trying to trap him again. Uh, take these out. I use these during, during uh, music. Uh, they tried to trap him again, and he, he builds his case on, on a tense of a verb. He says that, he says, I'm, I wasn't uh, the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes back to Exodus where this takes place, meaning that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they've already died, they are still living and there will be a resurrection. But the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, so he builds his whole case on just one little, little statement here. This is the power of Jesus, and this is why you don't mess with Jesus. Now, here's what I want to spend our time on today. I'd like you to look, if you would, starting in verse 28 and following. We are going to read this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a, a, a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now listen carefully. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. That is known as the Shema out of the Old Testament. The subject matter here is loving God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength and your neighbor as yourself. We now live in a nation that is extremely angry. And if you don't know that, you must have been living in a cave. We are a very angry nation. And I think one of the reasons we are is because not too many people have really been loved, genuinely loved. So we're going to look at a number of verses dealing with the subject matter of love. And the very first one is this. John 13, 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice the superlative. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. About, I don't know, 15 years ago, back in the church I was pastoring in Virginia, we had a Saturday night service and three Sunday morning services. And in between one of the morning services, I don't remember which one, a lady comes up to me 
And she says, I need to talk to you. And I said, well, set up a time with my executive assistant. She said, no, I need to talk to you right now. I said, I don't have time. I got another service coming up. And she said, you see, I'm an atheist. I said, we need to talk. So she sat down, and I had about 10 minutes, and I said, what are you doing here if you're an atheist? And she said, I went through a very, very difficult divorce, and some people in your church came alongside me, cared for me, walked me through my pain, brought me meals. I've never seen so much love in all my life. I've wanted to come here and find out what it was about, and I had the privilege of leading her to the Lord right there in between services. And I thought, I wonder if this is just a quick little profession of faith. She doesn't really get it. About a week later, she moved to South Carolina and wrote me, and she told me, she said, I bought myself a Bible, I've got a commentary, and I just led my mother to Christ. So I think it took. All because somebody cared enough to love this woman in such a way that it penetrated her heart, and she passed from death unto life. Matthew 22, 37 says, Jesus replied, it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is the first and the greatest of the commandments, all right? It's the greatest of the commandments. Here's that superlative again. I mean, all the law and the prophets hang on this. What does that mean? It means the entire Old Testament, all the law and the prophets are literally hanging on this great commandment to love. In other words, if there is no love, then everything falls apart. And, of course, everything does fall apart because none of us can possibly live that way. None of us love that much. But Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And that's another matter which we'll hit a little bit later on. And then we look at, at James chapter 2, what is referred to as the royal law. The royal law. Why is it called the royal law? Because it is the law of kings, and it is the law of the king. And this particular law, this particular law covers all the other laws. Every single law is subservient to this royal law. When we love people, uh, this particular law governs every single law that is out there, every law. It governs the fact that if you really love people, you wouldn't cruise through a stop sign. Now, it is okay to put your speedometer, you know, five miles ahead. That's okay, but, but you can't cruise through stop sign. The truth is, Jesus would never break any law because he loves people that much. And that's why it's called the royal law. What you're doing when you love people is you are crowning them with this royal law, which governs all laws, every single law. And then we see 1 Corinthians 13. Look at the number of superlatives. Uh, it always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. You can see all the different statements there. This is not something that you just put on your um, refrigerator or read it at a wedding. There's a context to 1 Corinthians 13, and it's a very important context because those in Corinth didn't get along very well. There was a lot of problems. And so, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes the greatest statement of love in that particular chapter, and all through it are these superlative statements. It never fails. It always does this. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These are these superlative statements. And about three years ago, it dawned on me that I didn't know of any other virtue in Scripture 
where there were so many superlative statements. It doesn't say that about, about mercy or grace or anything else, but it says it about love. Because love can do more than the government can do. It, love can do more than, than the military can do. Love can do anything. It is a conquering force. But the church must demonstrate that to a lost and dying world because this world is in bad shape. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, we read this. Above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers the multitude of sins, meaning you don't hold the sin and the offense against you from somebody else because of love. There's a young lady that we know out on the West Coast. Her name is Deb. And a number of years ago when she was, uh, became a waitress, she was getting started in her career in life, and she became a waitress at a restaurant and she worked the morning shift, and all the other waiters and waitresses said, hey, Deb, there's a very angry old man that comes in every morning, and he sits in that table. He doesn't tip, and if he does, it's a dollar, and he, he gripes about the, how his eggs are being cooked. And so we just trade off, and she goes, I'll serve him every day. Just give him to me. They said, you're kidding. She served this man for about a month. And he barked at her and made her take the eggs back. He'd leave her a dollar tip. Things weren't going well. And eventually one day he said, why do you serve me and the others don't? And she says, because I, I love you. You do. And then he started talking to her about her life. And he said, what do you want to do with your life? She says, well, I want to go to college. And he said, well, what's keeping you? She said, well, I've got, a, I've got some health issues. I've got a bad back and I've got to take care of that. And he said, I want you to go to the doctor and I'll pay for all the bills. He took care of all of her health issues. And then before she left, he gave her a $2,000 check to say, spend it any way you want. And now everybody wants to go into waitressing, all right? <laughs> because who, the, the other people had to have seen the love that she showed this older man who probably had never experienced genuine love before in his life. That's one of the reasons why I think our nation is so angry. So many people have never really experienced genuine love. And then you see that Galatians 5, 14 and Romans 13, 8 both talk about this as the fulfillment of the law. It's the fulfillment. How is love the fulfillment of the law? Because none of us can possibly keep the law. No one has ever even kept one of the Ten Commandments. You say, well, I've never committed adultery. You've thought it. I've never murdered anybody, but you've wished certain people were dead. We all have. Nobody's ever kept one of the Ten Commandments. The law tells you where you should be and condemns your every attempt to get there. But somebody kept the law for us. Praise God. So we see it's the absolute fulfillment of the law, and that's exactly what this whole section is about when we look at these. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 tells us this. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. The guy that led me to Christ back in June of 1970 in Copenhagen, Denmark, had fought in, uh, in Vietnam and shot down twice. He was a great, great leader. And when he came back to the States and got out of the military, he um, went to work for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Then he moved to Pittsburgh so he could take care of his, his elderly parents 
but he didn't have a job. So some friends said, I think you ought to try to go into banking. They're hiring a lot of people. He goes and he talks to the president of the bank. The president of the bank says, you don't know anything about finances. You've been flying helicopters and you've been working with these Christian athletes. He says, no, sir, I don't, but I know something about leadership. And they said, well, our charitable, charitable trust department is falling apart. We should be in the billions and we're in the millions. I'm going to give you 12 people to work with. You can fire all of them, start over again. You can do whatever you want to do, but you better build this up. He got with all 12, and he said, I know a little bit about each one of you. I know some of you are angry that I've gotten this particular position, but I want you to know something. We're going to be a team. And he built everything around the Sermon on the Mount without ever mentioning Jesus or the Bible. And that team became so great that Harvard University came down to study what Bruce had done to take 800 million to about 3 or 4 billion in a very short period of time. Then he started a Bible study with the 12. The Bible study grew to about 80 people. They were using a conference room in, in, at Pittsburgh National Bank. The president found out about it, called Bruce in and said, hey, what's this religion stuff you're doing in, in, in my bank? Bruce said, I'm just simply getting people together, teaching them how to make you the most successful president of any bank. And he said, do you need a bigger room? That's what love does. Love does more than anything the military can do, and I came out of a military background. It does more than, than the government, but it has to, you cannot impart what you do not possess. You have to have this in you. I have to have this in me. It's the power of the gospel. Philippians 1.9, and this is my prayer that you love, your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight, your knowledge and depth of wisdom. You may have heard me say in another message that knowledge is the accumulation of information. Wisdom is the proper application of that knowledge. And Paul's prayer is that, that love would be the, the center focus of this, and that's when everything flows out of this, there is a power, there's something about insight and wisdom and depth of understanding that comes out of the whole subject matter of love. And one of my favorite ones, this last one, Colossians 3 verses 13 and 14 says this, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And notice this, and over all there is that superlative again, these virtues put on love, which binds all of them together in perfect unity. There's several superlatives right there. I think I counted 13 superlatives about this virtue of love. Now, I want to take the remainder of our time and go into some real practical areas to deal. How do, we, how do we leverage this issue, this idea of love? Because all of us have had broken relationships. All of us have experienced tension in relationships. We see it all throughout Scripture. There's all kinds of battles. And Jesus and the apostles and all through Scripture give us some hints as to how we deal with some of these problems. So I want to spend a little time looking at that. Unfortunately, due to the internet, the church is known as hypocritical, bigots, living on the wrong side of history, uh, horrible statements made about the church. Unfortunately, it's not true. Undoubtedly, there are a few people in the church that, that get this, but, but the internet will just spread this like crazy everywhere. And so we have to change that narrative. We've got to change that narrative. I think sometimes that all of us are too easily offended. 
Proverbs 19.11 says, it said, it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. The psalmist says, all those who love thy law, now nothing shall offend them. It's really a good and smart thing to give up your right to being offended. And we're going to be hurt, but offense means I'm hanging on to it. I'm going to become bitter over it. And I think sometimes that's a real problem. There is an epidemic of hatred today. You see this everywhere. It doesn't matter what side of the coin you're on, Democrat, Republican, any time a decision is made by the government or whatever, there's just a rioting and burning things down. I'm thinking, what has happened to our nation? These people haven't been loved. If they have been loved, they've either gone on the Internet and found out that wasn't really love because there's another epidemic that's going on. And it's one where children are turning against their parents. I saw this for the first time up at our church where children were saying to their parents, I never want to talk to you again, ever. They'll email them. I never saw that in my lifetime. And now I've seen it up at our church. I've met people here that have told me the same thing. It is, it is because of the Internet, which I refer to as the most dangerous highway in the world. There are just way too many exit ramps in which you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. It's a necessary evil, but I'm telling you, young people are getting on there and finding out what I refer to as the three T's. They find out, my parents traumatize me. My parents are toxic. My parents are triggers. I can't be around my parents. And, I, and I, if you happen to be online watching or you're here and this sort of thing has happened and you've turned against your parents or your parents have turned against you, it is time to reconcile. It is time to love. It is time to get off of the narrative that our society is spreading this horrible anxiety. Hebrews says, Hebrews says, put away bitterness because it defiles many. Bitterness also is rottenness to the bones. You've heard this before. Bitterness is drinking poison and wishing somebody else died from it. That's not wise. It's not a good way to live has to be put away. But it is, it is an epidemic, and it is a real problem in our society. Humility closes the gap. Humility closes the gap. Now, let me say something about, about um, struggles, either marriage or with your children or your sibling rival or whatever. Prejudice always sides with me. If I get into a discussion with my wife, a little tension in the air, I'm convinced that I'm only 10% wrong and she's 90% wrong. You know what she's convinced of? She's convinced that I'm 100% wrong, (laughs) Or she sees herself as only 10% and I'm 90%. That's how we play the game. We, we, We assign percentage to the difficulty. The truth of the matter is we do not see clearly our part but we assign this percentage. That is not a good thing to do. We always have to examine ourselves and see where we fit. Here's another thing. If you have trouble at work with somebody, little, little statement that I've, one of my little taglines. If you knew their story, you might have more sympathy than judgment. If you knew their story, if you knew how they got to where they are, being angry or bitter or whatever, you might have a softer and tender heart towards them, like Deb did to this old man in the restaurant. 
I'm telling you, this changes, this changes the game. This is a game changer. And the church has got to step up to the plate and demonstrate this to a world that thinks that we are narrow-minded bigots. <sighs> Jesus says this, Matthew 7, Judge not, lest you be judged. For the same measure that you judge, it will be measured to you, you hypocrite. And then he says this, First, take out the log that is in your eye so that you'll be able to see clearly the speck that is in the other person's eye. That could be a husband-wife relationship, employer-employee, siblings, whatever. Because the log in your eye might really just be a little speck, but it's in your eye so it looks like a log, and the speck in their eye is a log in their eye. First take out the log in your eye, your problem, what you need to own up to. Then you'll be able to see clearly the speck in their eye. Humility closes the gap. The admission of wrong. Because if I'm only 10% wrong, and if I think I'm 10% wrong, I probably am a lot more than that, but if I think I'm only 10% wrong, here's the problem. I'm still responsible for my 10%. And if I go to one of my children, or to my wife, or one of our pastors back home, and I have to walk in and say, listen, um, about yesterday, I'm really sorry for what I said. I know that embarrassed you in front of the staff. I was wrong. Now listen carefully. You don't say, I apologize. Apologies are for mistakes. You ask forgiveness for sin. Two different things. Apology, hey, apologize for yes, you're just sweeping under the carpet. When you ask somebody to forgive you, that is hard. That's humbling yourself. And you know what might just happen? They might all of a sudden see their 10% or 80% or whatever and say, you know, I didn't respond too well either. The next thing you know, there's reconciliation. Too often we just sweep things under the carpet and just hope they all go away, but they don't. There was a pastor in Florida many years ago named Peter Lord, and he, uh, he had a statement that was, as you left the church, it said, you believe only what you act on, all the rest is just religious talk. Isn't that a great line? You believe only what you act on. All the rest is just religious talk. Jason last week talked about, are we really following the Lord? Are we real followers? I think of, I have a friend of mine, uh, Jamie Winship, and Jamie is exceptionally bold. There's no question about it. And I'll tell you one quick story. Jamie was driving from New Jersey down through Delaware, and he went through one, one of the tolls, and he pulled up the toll operator and handed him his $2, and he, and he said to the toll operator, how you doing? And the guy looked at him and said, you don't care how I'm doing. Jamie took off, and his wife said, did you hear what he said? He said, yeah. He pulled off the side of the road, he popped the trunk of the car, pulled out a bulletin from the church he'd just spoken at, went down, turned around, paid a toll coming back, went through that toll, turned around, and went right through the very same line, pulled up to the guy and said, I was here a few minutes ago. Yeah, I remember. I asked you how you were doing. You said, I didn't care. You're wrong. I do care. What's the problem? He said, my marriage has fallen apart. Jamie says, here's a bulletin. I just preached at this church. I want you to call the pastor, get counseling, and I'm going to check on it. I'm going to call the pastor to see that you did it. Jamie called the pastor. He and his wife went in for counseling. After a number of months, 
Their marriage was restored. He's now a deacon in that church. That's love. That is love. Love breaks down barriers. It does things that nothing else can possibly do. I had a dear friend that I was so, so close to. He was on our staff at Reston Bible Church for many years. But he had marriage problems. There was a number of other things that were going on, and we had to, we had to let him go. And he was the guy that discipled me. It broke our relationship. It just broke it. And many, many years later, I was going to go back to the college that I, Bible college that I came from, and I had a speaking engagement there. And my wife emailed my dear friend Rudy and said, I want you to know Reston Bible Church would have never gotten started if it weren't for you. He wept. He went to the reunion, and we reconciled. We reconciled. I'm telling you, there's nothing like the love of God, the love of the gospel that reconciles us, brings things back on track. It just does. I look at Rolling Hills Community Church. There are people that you may invite that will say, I, I will never darken the doors of a church, but if I do, I'm going to go to Rolling Hills because of you, because of my neighbor, because of my boss, because whoever's talking. I see a love in you that's different than other people. So someday I might show up. I don't say this to give Jeff a swelled head, but one of the reasons this church is growing so fast is your leadership, your head guy, is probably the most loving man I've ever met. Just even this morning coming in, he hugged every single person on stage. He's just slapping everybody. Matter of fact, most of the time you wind up in the hospital after Jeff's hit you a few times, but he really loves people. And it, it pours out. You cannot impart what you do not possess, and it comes into the church. Now, as I talk to some of you that may be at, be at home or some of you that, that are here, there's something that is very, very compelling about all this, and that is this. In the book of Romans, in the fifth chapter, it talks about, it says, Christ died for us while we were sinners. Christ died for us while we were enemies. Christ died for us while we were ungodly. Now, some people will say, I'm such a terrible sinner that God would never let me in. I turn to Romans 5 and say, how bad a sinner are you? I'm a terrible sinner. Good, you qualify. Here's what it says. He died for the ungodly. Well, I'm really ungodly. Good. You qualify all the more. That's who he died for. He didn't die for the righteous. He came to bring sinners to repentance. And so when we look at this whole subject matter of this, the greatest commandment, fulfilling the law, you and I could never love that much. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus comes along, and through his entire life on this earth, the 33 years he was here, he kept the law perfectly. Now, here's what most religious people think. Most religious people think, if I keep the law, God will let me into heaven. And then you ask him what the law is. You ask them what the Ten Commandments are, and they have no idea. They can maybe name you two. Jesus says that he has fulfilled that law. In other words, he has earned our righteousness because all of us have to have kept the law perfectly in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And religious people are always trying, 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 go to church more, do this, give more, try this, 
get this spiritual letter sweater, you know, and God will, I'll show it to him when I get to heaven. He's not impressed. He's not impressed. He's impressed with his son who kept the law perfectly. He kept the law for you and he kept the law for me, which means he earned our salvation. He earned our righteousness because we couldn't. We couldn't possibly do it. And that's the great news of the gospel. And 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says this, those that do not love do not know God. Let that sink in. I didn't say it. It's in Scripture. Now, I realize we all get angry from time to time, and I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation, but 1 Corinthians 15 says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Is your life filled with bitterness and anger and lack of relationships? It's time to deal with that. If you're one of these children, you've written your parents off, you might be 30 or 40 years of age. It's time to come back. It's time to reconcile. It's time to settle it. It's time to do what God has called you to do, to love. Because love covers a multitude of sin. And love is so powerful and so penetrating that it is overwhelming to the recipient. Sometimes a recipient can hardly handle the love that they've never seen before. And I'm not responsible, nor is Jeff, nor is this church responsible for our entire nation. But we're responsible for the area that God has given us here in Franklin, Tennessee. We're responsible to be people that carry out love every single day as we saw Deb do, my friend Bruce, Jamie, all the different illustrations I've given of people that love somebody who is unlovable or love somebody that had never experienced love. I just have to believe that so many people in our nation, when I see the rioting and the anger, I'm thinking, have you ever been loved before? Has anybody ever poured the love of Christ into your life? And then when we do, it changes that person's perspective on everything. Because once love penetrates a darkened heart, that person leaves the kingdom of darkness and is placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That person passes from death unto life. And if you're here today and you've never put your trust, your hope, your faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, there's the key word, alone. Not how good I am, not my church membership, not how much money I give, but in Christ alone. The one who kept the law fulfilled the entire law for you and for me. And when we believe that, it's just as though we kept the law perfectly and all of its righteousness is placed to our account as a gift. It's the greatest news in the world. So if you've never put your faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for these dear people that have come out today and I pray that those that are watching online, those that are here today, if they've never put their faith in Christ, that today would be the day that they would call upon you and you alone for salvation, that they might pass from death unto life. And Father, if there are broken relationships, it is hard, it is hard to ask forgiveness. It is difficult when we see ourselves as only 10% wrong.
but it's time to reconcile. For young people, perhaps, that have written their parents on, off, it's time to come home. It's time to confess. It's time to repent. It's time to live a life of love that will penetrate the darkened hearts of the people around us. And now, Father, I pray that you dismiss us with your grace. We'll give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this sermon, make sure to share it with loved ones and subscribe so you can tune in each time we release a new sermon. Don't forget to check out our other awesome content, like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, go ahead and download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We'll see you next time.